You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 251 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. With this episode, we're going to begin our look at what happened in 1863 during the Civil War. And with this show, we're going to turn our eyes not to Washington or Richmond, not to Virginia or Tennessee, not to Mississippi, But we're going to look at something that happened down in the Lone Star State of Texas on the very first day of the new year. On the morning of January 1st, 1863, through the powder smoke drifting along the Galveston waterfront, Confederate Major General John B. Magruder saw the dawn's first light begin to brighten the eastern sky. But he was much more interested just then in searching the hazy skyline to the northwest hoping to catch a glimpse of his hurriedly constructed cotton-clads, which should have come steaming down Galveston Bay by then to deliver a surprise attack on the Union warships whose guns had been shelling his troops for the last hour or so. The Federal ships had just successfully helped the Massachusetts soldiers barricaded on the docks in front of Magruder repel the rebels' early morning infantry and artillery attack. Now, with the sky beginning to lighten, the Confederate commander quickly gave orders to his subordinates to place the exposed guns and troops behind nearby buildings and lay siege to the Yankees who were bottled up on the wharf. In that moment, as Prince John Magruder contemplated how his daring plan to capture Galveston had broken down, he no doubt hoped that this first day of January 1863 would end better than it had started. The Confederacy, and especially the people of Texas, were counting on him, and he was determined not to let them down. Well, after that dramatic opening, we actually need to backtrack a bit to understand how Magruder and the Federals came to be battling for Galveston on New Year's Day, 1863. In 1860, Galveston was a thriving town of 7,000 and Texas's busiest port. Most of the Lone Star State's cotton was exported through Galveston. Of the 300,000 bales of cotton in the state's 1860 crop, 200,000 were shipped out through Galveston. It was also a major processor and exporter of sugar, and an an industrial center with two iron foundries and numerous manufacturers of sails and other maritime products. When war came, Galveston's importance as a major port for the Western Confederacy was obvious. And if it fell into federal hands, the place would be an excellent blockading base and could serve as a staging area for an invasion into the interior of Texas, 
to obtain cotton and secure the border with Mexico. When Texas seceded from the Union in February 1861, it didn't take state and Confederate authorities long to realize that the Lone Star State's 385-mile coastline was extremely vulnerable. And early in the Civil War, with most of Texas's newly raised troops sent off to Virginia, there were precious few soldiers left to guard against a federal attack back home. To add to the state's anxiety, the first federal blockader appeared off Galveston in July 1861. But it turned out that making an appearance off the port and having enough warships to enforce the blockade were two very different things. And so, with most of the Federals' attention in the Gulf focused on the major ports of New Orleans and Mobile, and with few Union warships available to guard the approaches to Galveston, the port became a safe haven for Southern blockade runners, and the anchor of Texas's still busy coastal shipping activity. But despite Galveston's importance, almost as soon as he assumed command of the Confederate Department of Texas in 1861. Brigadier General Paul A. Bear took one look at a map and determined the exposed town on the tip of an island couldn't be successfully defended. A. Bear therefore ordered that only token resistance was to be made to any serious federal attempt to land and seize Galveston. One ten-inch Columbiad was left at Fort Point, but the rest of the guns and all supplies were moved to the mainland. Where troops worked on a fortification protecting the mouth of the Trinity River, where it emptied into the bay. Thus, when Union ships entered Galveston Bay in force on the morning of October fourth, eighteen sixty-two, the Columbiad at Fort Point fired only one shot at the enemy vessels. Then, in accordance with a bear's orders, the cannon was spiked, and the Confederates began an orderly evacuation to the mainland. There they joined the garrison at Fort A. Bear, named after the general who had elected to abandon Galveston to the enemy. In command of the Union naval force that steamed into Galveston Bay on October fourth, eighteen sixty-two, was Commodore William B. Renshaw. Whose orders were to put a stop to Galveston's use by blockade runners, and interrupt the coastal trade that still thrived along the Texas coastline despite the federal blockade. The commander of the West Gulf Blockading Squadron, David Glasgow Farragut, had told Renshaw that the best way to accomplish his mission was to enter Galveston Bay and capture Galveston. And so Farragut was elated when Renshaw reported that he had easily entered the bay and captured the town. Farragut saw it as the essential first step in reasserting federal control along the Texas coast. He sent a message to Washington stating, quote, "All we want is a few soldiers to hold the places, and we will soon have the whole coast." But reasserting federal control along the Texas coast didn't turn out to be as easy as Farragut hoped. To begin with, the army found it difficult to spare even the quote unquote few soldiers that Farragut's plans required. Renshaw's squadron had a few Marines as part of its normal ships' complements, but he lacked the infantry and field guns that would enable him to exercise control over Galveston. 
At first, this didn't seem like much of a problem, because most of the town's inhabitants had fled to the mainland when the federal ships appeared, and the remaining citizens were either Union sympathizers or willing to act like they were. Renshaw's reception had been surprisingly cordial, but he realized that his position was potentially hazardous, so he ordered a detail to raise the U.S. flag over the custom house every day, and then prudently instructed them to withdraw to the safety of the ships at night. Renshaw thought this daylight occupation of Galveston was only to be a temporary thing, since Farragut had promised that army troops would be arriving to occupy the place. But as Renshaw soon came to realize, Farragut was having a difficult time living up to his promise. For his part, Farragut had repeatedly asked Major General Benjamin Butler for the Union Army troops necessary to hold Galveston, and had passed along to Renshaw Butler's assurances that the troops were on the way and should arrive any day. But weeks went by, and the promised infantry force failed to materialize. As Renshaw began reporting rumors that he was about to be attacked, his demands for army troops became increasingly shrill and adamant. Finally, when Renshaw dared to suggest that he might have to retreat from Galveston if the promised soldiers didn't arrive on the scene soon, Farragut exploded with anger. He sent a message to Renshaw, asking, Has it come to this, that four gunboats armed with eight, nine, and eleven-inch guns, are to be driven out of a harbor by the report of some person that preparations are being made to drive them out of the harbor? Are you willing that I should make such a statement to the Honorable Secretary of the Navy that we have abandoned the ports of Texas because of reports that they are making plans to drive us out? I trust not. The gunboats must hold Galveston until the army arrives, and I have no doubt that when you are attacked, you will make a defense that will do credit to the Navy as well as yourselves. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The persistent rumors that the rebels were about to attack continued to weigh heavily upon Renshaw, and the rumors were, in fact, correct. The newly arrived Confederate commander, Major General John Bankhead Magruder, fully intended to attack the Yankees and recapture Galveston. 
Magruder arrived in Texas with his reputation under somewhat of a cloud. You guys will no doubt recall how we've already talked about Prince John, as he was known by his comrades in the old army, previously on the podcast, most recently in connection with his performance during the Peninsula Campaign, delaying Little Mac's advance toward Richmond, and then his service during the Seven Days Battles under Robert E. Lee. Well, as it turned out, Lee became convinced Magruder didn't belong in the Army of Northern Virginia, and, as tended to happen to such officers whom Lee didn't want in his army any longer, Magruder was shuffled off to another theater of the war, in this case, Texas. Despite Magruder's reputation being under a cloud, when he arrived in Houston in November 1862, he was hailed by Texans as a hero and savior. That's because his predecessor, a bear, had quickly fallen out of favor with the locals due to his controversial decision to tamely give up Galveston to the Yankees without a fight. Magruder wasted no time in letting it be known that he wasn't content to let Galveston stay in the hands of the enemy. During the long trip south from Virginia, Prince John had studied a map of the Gulf Coast and came to the conclusion that, with New Orleans in federal hands, Galveston was the key to the survival of the Confederacy in the West. As he wrote to fellow General Edmund Kirby Smith, quote, in my judgment, Texas is virtually the Trans-Mississippi Department, and the railroads of Galveston and Houston are virtually Texas. For whoever is the master of Galveston and Houston is virtually the master of Texas, and this is not the case with any other part of Texas. The more he studied the problem, the more Magruder became convinced that he had to take quick action to recapture Galveston. But how in the world was he going to do it? He had precious few ground troops available, and almost nothing in the way of naval forces, while the Yankees had a squadron of powerful gunboats. One of Magruder's greatest strengths, though, was his ability to make creative use of the military resources at hand. By the time he arrived in Houston, Magruder already had the rough outline of a plan. He would enter Galveston one night and capture the attention of the Federal ships with an artillery bombardment. Then, while the Yankees' attention was diverted by this unexpected shelling from the shore, a Confederate naval force would catch them by surprise and attack them from the rear and drive them out of Galveston Bay. However, as his staff was quick to point out, there were two problems with this plan. One, Magruder had no naval force with which to attack the Federal ships, and two, the general had no ground force to speak of, except for a few small companies of artillery and a couple of local militia units. Despite the obvious obstacles, Magruder made up his mind to carry out his plan to recapture Galveston. He knew very little about ships or naval matters, but was lucky enough to run into someone he had known previously in California and who had impressed Magruder with his knowledge of steamships. That man, Leon Smith, who had fought in the Texas War for Independence, was put in charge of the naval side of Magruder's plan, and he adopted the title of Major, or Commodore, depending upon the occasion. For convenience sake, we'll be referring to him as Major Smith. Right. At any rate, under Major Smith's direction, 
two river steamers, Bayou City and Neptune No. 2, which were being operated by the state of Texas, were moved to Harrisburg on nearby Buffalo Bayou, where workers began converting them into armed cotton clads. To do this, the workers stripped off Bayou City's upper cabins and pilot house, and cotton bales were tipped on their sides and stacked three high along the deck. Another row, two bales high, backed these, and provided a platform for sharpshooters. Boarding planks were constructed on each side of the ship and hoisted beside the smokestacks so they could be dropped on an enemy vessel. Mounted on a makeshift pivot and protruding from among the cotton bales on the bow was an old 32-pounder smoothbore that had been reworked into a rifle. Major Smith himself would captain the Bayou City. For her part, Neptune sported two 24-pounder howitzers, and she too was armored with cotton bales. Captain Armand Ware, who commanded Company B of the 1st Texas Heavy Artillery, was placed in charge of the 32-pounder on Bayou City, while his fellow officers, Captain L.C. Harvey and Lieutenant Harvey Clark, would be in charge of the howitzers on Neptune. Two transports, Lady Gwen and John F. Carr, accompanied the cottonclads. The two transports had cotton bales shielding their engines and machinery, but were unarmed. Magruder now had his ships and was rapidly collecting the artillery he would use to bombard the enemy warships, but he still needed a large force of infantry to implement his plan. Casting his eye about, Magruder found that the best source of manpower in the area was the Sibley Brigade. These were the survivors of Henry Sibling's ill-fated attempt back in 1862 to launch an invasion from Texas and seize the New Mexico Territory for the Confederacy, which we covered a long time ago now on the podcast. Well, anyway, after the Confederate forces' long, difficult retreat back to Texas, the Sibley Brigade was resting and recruiting not far from Houston in preparation for their pending relocation to Louisiana. Magruder tapped the 20th Texas Infantry Regiment, the 21st Texas Infantry Battalion, and detachments of the 2nd and 26th Texas Cavalry for his ground attack on Galveston. After some artful persuasion by by Magruder, the Sibley Brigade's Colonel Tom Green agreed to get 300 volunteers to serve as sharpshooters on board the cottonclads. Most of Green's hand-picked volunteers were mostly from his old 7th Texas Cavalry, and he affectionately referred to them as his Horse Marines. Green's Horse Marines were issued either an Enfield rifle for long-range shooting or a double-barreled shotgun, which would be deadly at close range when the opportunity came to board an enemy ship. While Prince John Magruder was getting together his naval and ground forces to attack Galveston, Commodore Renshaw was still fretting over the rumors he was hearing about rebel plans to recapture the port. But as Christmas approached, Renshaw looked forward to greeting the large body of Union troops that was supposedly on its way from New York to help him occupy Galveston. On December 24, 1862, the 1st Union Infantry finally arrived in Galveston. 
But instead of the thousands of men he had expected, Renshaw was surprised to welcome only three companies of the 42nd Massachusetts, about 260 men in all. This force included the regiment's colonel, Isaac Burrell, but the remainder of the 42nd, along with most of the unit's ammunition and supplies, was on another transport vessel that wouldn't make it to Galveston in time for the battle. With such a small portion of his regiment present, Colonel Burrell decided that for the time being, the troops he had on hand would take up position at the end of Coon's Wharf on the waterfront. The wharf was about 400 feet long and 20 feet wide. At the harbor end of the wharf was a large three-story storehouse that Burrell ordered his men to reinforce with sacks of plaster and a barricade. At the city end of the wharf, the colonel had his men pull up all but one of the planks from a section of the decking, and then these planks were made into another barricade. The idea behind this unusual bit of carpentry was that the single plank would form a narrow walkway and would limit the number of attackers who could rush onto the wharf and assault the defenders. Colonel Burrell's defenses and Commodore Renshaw's resolve were soon to be put to the test because Magruder had been told that New Year's Eve would present the perfect combination of tide and moonlight to launch his surprise attack on the Yankees. And so on the evening of December 31st, even as the Confederate ground force readied itself to march over into Galveston, Major Smith and the rebels' little cotton-clad fleet steamed slowly by Morgan's Point at the northern entrance to Galveston Bay. Suddenly, a messenger caught up to them with a note from the flamboyant and theatrical Magruder. It read, To Major Smith, in command of the gunboat expedition, and Colonel Green, in command of the land forces on board, I am off, and will make the attack as agreed, whether you come up or not. The rangers of the prairie send greetings to the rangers of the sea. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Battle on the Bay, The Civil War Struggle for Galveston by Edward T. Cotham, Jr. You know, when you have hundreds upon hundreds of books on any one topic, um, say like the Civil War, uh, there are just some books you forget you have. And we'd forgotten about this one until we saw that Galveston was coming up on the podcast timeline and we dug it out. But we're glad we did, because this is one of the more interesting little battles of the Civil War, and Cotham's book is an excellent account of it. So that's Battle on the Bay, The Civil War Struggle for Galveston, by Edward T. Cotham, Jr. Don't forget that you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. For all of you members of the Strawfoot Brigade, just this morning we released members episode number 74, which is the first of two episodes looking at the life of someone we found a bit fascinating ever since we talked about him in some of the pre-war episodes of the podcast, and that would be John C. Calhoun. And in a blatant attempt to grab your attention, we've titled these members episodes, The Man Who Started the Civil War. 
Anyway, here's where we give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, who are Raymond, Matthew, Jack, and Michael. We also want to say thank you to Gregory and Madai for their recent donations to the podcast. All right, well, we initially had grand plans to cover Galveston in one show, but our day jobs kicked both of our butts this past week, and we just didn't have it in us to do an uber-long episode this weekend. So, obviously, we've split up the story into two shows. But thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next week when we return to the Battle of Galveston. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.